The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Currently, I play on a two-hand touch football league, and um, it's my second year there. And in those two years, I've noticed even from year to year that I am uh, losing it a little bit, that... uh, that I don't quite seem to have the same swagger that I had when I was in high school, that, that it's, my talent is fading away to a certain degree. Uh, it takes me a lot longer to warm up the arm, and uh, I can't quite do the moves I used to do. I remember that just this past Thursday, I was running down the field with the ball, and there was a, there was a defender, and there was me, and I thought, you know, I'm going to fake him out, I'm going to juke him out, and I went to do this spin move, and I, the only person I juked out was myself because I landed on the ground and he tagged me and I was, I was done. And I turned to my lineman and I said, did we get a first down? And he said, we did, but they might take it away because of that spin move. So it was quite embarrassing. But you see in life, a lot of things kind of just fade away. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. My neighbor, Farmer Dave, he does the crossword puzzle every day to keep his mind sharp. Studies have shown that doing things like that help people as they grow older to retain their memory. Um, you even see this in relationships. Many times when I, when I do marriage counseling with people, they will say, you know, when we got married, we were so happy and in love and we enjoy each other. And I'll say, what happened? And they'll say, I don't know. It's just, it just over time we got busy and it slowly faded away. Our romance did. Our, the spark faded away. It's a slow fade, usually, in those types of relationships. Casting Crowns puts it this way. It says, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Our relationship with God is the same. If you feel far from God, if you feel distant from God, Chances are it didn't happen overnight. Chances are that it was a slow fade where you started to change around your priorities in life, where God became less of a focus of your life, less of a priority. He took less of your schedule, less of your heart, and now you feel distant from God. That's what we're going to study today in Genesis chapter 38. If you would, please open up to Genesis chapter 38. It's page 32 in the Red Bible, page 65 In the children's Bible, I would really like to see how this story was written in the children's Bible. But anyways, it's on page 65 in the children's Bible. This chapter is kind of interesting because Genesis 37 through 50 uh, really covers the life of Joseph, except for Genesis chapter 38. In Genesis 38, it kind of interrupts this Joseph story and looks at one of Jacob's other sons, his son Judah. And that's who we're going to look at today. And as we look at this chapter, um, you might be asking, why is this chapter in the Bible? What benefit is it to us? Some commentators have said this chapter is worthless. But what we'll see today is that it is an extraordinary story of God's grace and God's redemption throughout the course of all of human history. So I'm excited to dive dive into it with you today. Let's start with prayer. Gracious God, as we turn to your word, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would impress it upon our hearts, God. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouraging. And may we revel in the glory of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, since we're taking such a large portion of scripture, we'll read it in parts and work through it together. 
And what we'll go through is we'll see Judah's community in verses 1 through 5, Judah's children in 6 through 11, Judah's character in 12 through 35, Judah's conversion in 24 through 26, and then God's grace in 27 through 30. So let's start by looking at Judah's community. Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hurrah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Judah made many small choices just in these five verses that, that made him fade in his intimacy with God, that made him draw away from God. The first problem we see here is that Judah actually separates himself. He breaks fellowship with the covenant community. God had made a covenant with his father, Jacob, who's also named Israel. And he said, you will be my people and I will be your God. This was a family, although very disturbed, worshiped the Lord God. And so he distanced himself. He went away. He went on to go try to live life to the fullest. And so his first problem was that he broke fellowship with God's covenant community that worshiped the Lord God. It continues as he becomes best friends with a guy named Hurrah. I mean, that should have been a warning in the first place, right? If someone's name is Hurrah, maybe this is not the best person to be best friends with. But Hurrah was not a godly man. Hurrah was a party animal. He was kind of the life of the party. We see later in the chapter that he, he takes Jacob, I'm sorry, he takes Judah into areas of great and horrific sin. And he encourages it and he propels it. And so his second mistake was becoming best friends with this man who did not worship the Lord God. Judah's slow fade continues as he marries the daughter of Shua. You know, it's very interesting because they don't even mention the woman's name in this chapter or in this passage. We don't know her name. It only gives us one detail about her. And the detail that it gives us about her is that she is a daughter of a Canaanite. She's a daughter of a Canaanite. Now, what's the problem with her being a Canaanite? Well, if you look throughout Genesis, you'll see that marrying a Canaanite is never applauded. It's always frowned upon. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant to go get a wife from Isaac, not from the Canaanites, but from his homeland. And there's a lot of warnings around that. Esau goes on to marry a Canaanite woman, and it makes life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac blesses Jacob and says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now, what was the problem with marrying the Canaanite women? Well, you see, what it is saying is that to marry a Canaanite woman is the same as marrying an unbeliever. In the New Testament, it puts a very clear God's standard for believers when they marry. 2 Corinthians verse six, sorry, chapter 6, verse 14 through 16 puts it this way. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All right? So it's a picture of two oxen with a yoke on them, connecting them. It says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
This is a picture again of a believer and an unbeliever yoked together in marriage like oxen are yoked together. And it is as if one oxen is either dead or headed in the opposite direction. And the other oxen is trying to move forward. One is headed towards righteousness. The other is headed towards lawlessness. One is headed towards darkness. The other is headed towards light. One opposes God and one possesses God. Now, if this is new to you, if this is something you've never heard before, this might seem, I don't know, bigotry or, or, or just it may seem wrong. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, the goal in your life is to glorify God and to enjoy God. And that is a hard thing to do. And the most powerful person on this earth that has the most influence over you is your spouse. And if that spouse is not headed the same direction you are, it is not impossible, but only by the grace of God could you enjoy God and glorify God because everything else, the person most important to you is pulling you in the opposite direction. And so we see Judah's slow fade from intimacy with God. You know, it's interesting because as I read these first five verses, sadly, it reminded me of when many students go off to college. They go away to college. They want to live it up. They want to have fun. They want to live life to the fullest. And they're too naive to know that life in the fullest can only be found in Christ. And so they go away to college. And they start to distance themselves from God's people. They say things like, yeah, I'm just too busy to go to church. I'm so busy. I can't make it to church. And they'll say, I don't want to go to InterVarsity or Crew or whatever. I don't want to go to Bible study. Those people are kind of weird. They're kind of strange. And so they start separating themselves from God's people. They become best friends with ungodly influence. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is great to be friends with non-Christians. I have lots of non-Christian friends But to have someone that can speak truth into your life, that can hold you accountable, that can love you, care for you, point you to God. You want someone that can hold you accountable, not someone that can hold your ankles when you're doing a keg stand. That's the type of friendship you're looking for. And so they will start distancing themselves from God's people, start aligning themselves with people that don't know the Lord. And then they will go on and date and sometimes marry someone that is not a believer. And they will say things like, but this person understands. This person is sympathetic to my faith. They will say things like, but they're such a good person and I really, really love them. And God brought us together. To which I would say, no, he didn't. (laughs) God makes very clear that we are to marry in the faith as we It's the goal of our life is to glorify and enjoy him. And we need a partner that can help us to that end. And so I want to ask you here, if you are a high school student, would you take these commitments? Would you commit that when you leave the house, when you go on to your own, would you commit to being a part of God's community, no matter how busy you are, no matter how weird they are, no matter how strange they are, would you commit to being a part of God's community? When you leave your house, would you be committed to finding godly friends, friends that will push you towards Christ and not push you away from Christ? When you leave your house, would you commit to marrying a Christian? Even if it means staying single the rest of your life, would you say, my marriage to God is more important than any marriage on this earth and I want it to be in obedience to him? We see Judah's slow fade. A lot of times kids go off to college and they have a slow fade away because they don't make these things a priority in their life. And so I would ask you, if you're in high school, junior high, make this commitment to the Lord. So we look, Judah departs from God's people, his covenant community. He becomes best friends with an unbeliever party animal, who's probably a lot of fun, to be honest. 
He makes choices that lead to the slow fade away from intimacy with God. And what we see is that it does not lead to a life of great joy. Rather, it leads to a devastating life. Let's look at verse 6 and look at Judah's children. And Judah took a wife from Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. You know, as we look at this passage, something that becomes very obvious to us is that Judah raised ungodly boys. Ungodly Judah raised ungodly boys. I know it's hard to believe. You look at the oldest son, Ur. We don't even know what he did. All we know is that he was so extremely wicked that God put him to death. Judah gives the other son to Tamar. Part of it might have been to protect her because in that culture, if you were a widow, you were very vulnerable. And so there was this Levite uh, uh, custom in which you would give the brother-in-law to the wife so that she'd be taken care of. Because if a woman was a widow... Um, she wouldn't have much opportunity to work in the agrarian society and, and men would not want to marry her because she's already been married. And so this was one way to take care of the widow. But I think for Judah, the main reason why he did it was because he wanted his line to go on. He wanted the, the, the line of his oldest son to continue. It says in this chapter or in these verses a few times that he would bear a son for his brother, that Onan would. And that Onan didn't want to because he would be bearing a son in his brother's line and not in his own. And so when Onan is told to go into his brother's wife to marry her and to sleep with her, he has a dilemma. There is, there's, there, there's differing goals for him because if he produces a child for his brother Ur, that means he will lose his inheritance or at least it will be divided And so he has this this conflict inside of him. And we read in verse 9 that Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. They would be his brothers. And that guy would receive the inheritance. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. See, Onan was a wicked man. Onan did not think anything of Tamar's situation or of his father's dreams or of the kids that were to come or the plan of God. And so he used Tamar simply as a sex toy, and it was wicked, and the Lord killed him. Judah is probably not a very good dad. If you have three kids, and God kills two of them because they are wicked, you might need to change your parenting techniques. Judah was not a godly man to raise godly kids. He was a wicked man that raised wicked kids. Now, what I find out very interesting here is Judah's response to their death. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, And Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, his only son left, grows up. Now we'll find out later that he never intends to give Shelah to her, to Tamar. And the reason's right here. He said, For he feared 
that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. We see here that Judah is in absolute denial. Judah does not at all own the fact that he has raised ungodly children, that he has raised wicked children who are killed by God. Rather, he places the responsibility and the blame on Tamar. He thinks she is a widow maker, and so he sends her on her way to protect his other son, Shelah. Fathers need to realize the influence that we have on children is unmatched. I mean, the statistics, some of you have probably heard of it, but it's unmatched. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the national average. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes, 10 times the average. 85% of children with behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the national average. 80% of rapists come from father's home. Again, 20 times the average. 80% of all youth in prison come from fatherless home. Again, 20 times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 32 times the national average. And so I addressed the high school kids before, but let me address the dads. If you have adult children that are out of the house, that are not walking with the Lord, Can you own some of that responsibility? Can you confess, I may not have had the most godly fathering techniques? Can you repent to God? Can you repent to your children? Because through that repentance, there is still a great opportunity. You see, your children may no longer live under your roof, but you are still their father. You are still their mother. And for some of you, you are father and mother to children that biologically aren't yours. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. So we can continue to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you are a father and you have children in your home, this is a reminder to us of the importance to be spiritual leaders in our household, to raise our children to know and love and serve the Lord. There are many things out there that want to distract your time, whether it be work or sports or whatever it might be. And yet God says, fathers are to lead their home spiritually. And the most important thing you do is love Jesus and love their mommy. And so we see here, Judah's fathering is not the most godly. His children turn out wicked. We move on to see Judah's character. I think we already have a pretty good idea of it, but it's really flushed out and made plain here. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friends, hurrah, the Adulamite. Okay, so I know this might seem silly, but this sheep shearing thing was kind of like a party. It was kind of like Mardi Gras. There was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of sex. There was a lot of nudity. And so hurrah, of course, joins him to go up and join him in this escapade. Verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tinma to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And so again, Tamar changes her clothes, dresses up like a prostitute, and then is banking on the ungodly character of Judah, is trusting that Judah is a man driven 
by selfish desires and personal gratification. So she dresses up. It goes on. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge, uh, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So in today's terminology, that would be like giving the prostitute your wallet and saying, I promise I will pay you later. So he gives her his, his, his ID, his credit cards, things like that. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, yep, hurrah, right? His BFF, going to pay for Judah's prostitute. What a good friend. To take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you the quote that character is who you are when no one else is looking. The character of Judah and Tamar are written on the pages of Scripture for all to see. Judah loses his wife. He decides to go and have a good time to go up, you know, and what they say, what happens at the sheep shearing convention stays at the sheep shearing convention, right? That's how the saying goes. He goes out to live out his sinful fantasies. But what he finds out is that sin has tentacles, that sin always follows you home, that sin always brings suffering into your life. Tamar prostitutes herself out for her father-in-law, steals his wallet, And it's embarrassing. All right, let's keep moving. Judah's conversion. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah's actions are surprising, aren't they? They're shocking. His double standard is horrifying. Much of that double standard still exists today and is sinful and wrong. Judah sleeps with her outside of wedlock and it's perfectly okay because he's a man. He has needs. But when Tamar gets pregnant, he says, let her burn. Judah's punishment of Tamar is not only overborn, it's really unsubstantiated. He didn't talk to her. He didn't investigate it. He was looking for an opportunity to get rid of her. The truth is he already hated her. She had already, in his opinion, killed off two of his sons. And a third one was threatened. And so he said, good, I knew she was a whore. I knew she was promiscuous. I knew I could get rid of her. And so he sends her to the stake to burn. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. This word identify is to recognize. Tamar is asking Judah to recognize not only the chi- whose child it is in her belly, but to recognize his own sin. Tamar calls him out. And it's amazing how she does it, doesn't it? She does it privately. She doesn't yell, Judah is the father, Judah is the father. She sends him this stuff privately, respectfully. And in turn, God gets a hold of Judah's heart and he 
repents. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Judah shows here true repentance. He shows true repentance because first off, he doesn't follow through or he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was really lonely or I was really hurting or I was really sad. He didn't say, you know, Tamar, you shouldn't have dressed like that, all sexy and whatever. You know, he didn't make excuses. He He owned it as his own. He said, I have sinned. She is more righteous than I, this prostitute is more righteous than I. We also know it's true repentance because Judah not only owns his own sin, but he turns away from his sin. We see he doesn't go on to kill Tamar. He doesn't kill the child. And it also says here, very interestingly, that he doesn't sleep with her again. You know, the scenario between Judah and Tamar is, again, a reminder of us, of the need of brothers and sisters in Christ, best friends, community, that can point out the blind spots in our life. No one can point out the blind spot. No one can point out their own blind spot because they're blind to it. But Tamar comes and points out Judah's blind spot and it leads him to repentance. September 3rd, I was off work and I was driving to go cut some firework, firewood and I turned on ESPN radio and I was listening to the Jim Rome show and he was interviewing the Fresno State quarterback, Derek Carr. And I just want to read to you just a brief segment of that interview. Jim Rome says, Anyone can sense you are very humble, very proud, uh, very profound in your faith. You're a modest young guy, but you were a celebrity when you first arrived on the campus. When you got there, were you all those things? Were you the guy that you are right now? And Derek responds, he says, Oh no, not even close. I soaked it all up. I told my brothers, I tell my brothers all the time that I wish I could go back and punch that kid in the face. I love that. He said, I was an idiot. I was living the life, going to the parties, hanging out with whoever I wanted, and I was living the life I shouldn't have been living because I was dead wrong. I wasn't right at all in what I was doing. I remember I stood up in front of my team, red shirt ear, and told them, I say I'm a Christian, but I'm living this way. Forgive me. Jim Rome asked, did you have an epiphany? And Derek responded that his girlfriend at the time wrote him a 10-page letter that said, you are not the person I thought you were or that you said you were. And Derek said, that's when God hit my heart. I stopped living that life. Isn't it great to have friends that can point out the sin in your life? I know it's not easy. I know it's not fun. But it is by the grace of God to have a community around you that will say, I see this in your life and I think it's hurting you and enslaving you. And then to draw into repentance, a time in which you confess your sin without excuse, without blaming others, but owning it and then turning away from your sin. The Westminster gives a definition of repentance that I think is so rich. Some of the terms are a little bit outdated, but don't let that distract you from the richness of this description of repentance. It says, what is repentance unto life? It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sin. And upon that apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns from them all to God purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with them 
in all the ways of new obedience. This is the repentance that God desires. That we are sickened by our sin, turning to God and turning away from our sin. You see, there are two ways to read Genesis 38. One way to read Genesis 38 is to look at it and say, wow, I am so glad I'm not like Judah. I am so glad I am not like Tamar. Judah is a sexist, double standard, dirty pig, an old pervert. Tamar, she's this deceptive, slutty woman. I am so glad that I am not like her. That is one way to read this chapter. Jesus talks about those of you that read the chapter this way. He says, you are like the Pharisee who prays to God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like a tax collector. And so that's one way to read this chapter with looking down on Judah and Tamar. And then there is another way, the way that I think God would want us to read it, to look at the sinfulness of Judah, to look at the sinfulness of Tamar and say, they are like me. They are more righteous than I. Jesus says of these people, they are like the tax collector who goes home justified, who standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a story of C.S. Lewis. He, he joins this, uh, this, this great gathering of leaders from different religions. And the question was put out there, what makes your religion unique to every other religion? And his response was, that's easy. What makes Christianity unique is grace. It's grace. Grace is getting the loving kindness of God that you don't deserve. See, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. In every other religion, you need to prove your worthiness. You need to prove that you are good enough. But in Christianity, you have to confess your unworthiness. You have to confess that you are not good enough, but then look to the one who is. Look to Christ. In, Judas, in Genesis 38, Judas' wickedness is laid out for all to see, for all of history, till Christ returns. If your sin was laid out on the pages of Scripture, would you show your face in public? I wouldn't. It would be embarrassing. And yet God knows each and every one of your sins. Your sexual sin. He knows your parenting sin. He knows all of your sin. He sees it in full. And it is nailed to the cross, not in part, but in full. We are called to trust in Christ. Trust that at the cross, he bear all of our sins, that we could become agents of his redemption. Okay, let's keep moving on. God's grace. You know, I've joked about this being the naughty chapter, right? Like the naughty files. And we see, of course, Judah running away from the people of God befriending the world, marrying an unbeliever. We see God kills Ur and Onan because of their steep wickedness. Judah blames their death on Tamar instead of his own ungodly parenting. Tamar dresses up as a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, impregnates her. This is a naughty chapter full of very naughty people. And so what is the point of having this in the Bible? Why is it here? Why does it interrupt the story of Joseph? And one reason is to show us that no matter how naughty of a person you are, God's grace is greater. Look at verse 27. It says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But he drew back his hand. Behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach, literally breaking forth, okay? 
you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Remember that name, Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Now, in the midst of this wickedness, we see that God's grace breaks out, that it perezes out. How does it break out? Well, we mentioned, again, that this kind of interrupts the story of Joseph. But in reality, Joseph is the, is, is the ship that carries the freight of the line of Judah. The line of Judah is very, very important. As we look forward to the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the New Testament. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah wasn't the oldest. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. And then the genealogy continues all the way till it gets to Christ. You know, if you had this lineage, if I had this lineage, I would be ashamed of it. I would not tell anybody about how my great, 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 great grandpa was conceived. And yet God decides to use this ungodly line to be the royal line of which the Savior would come. I would have chosen the line of Joseph, a godly, God-fearing man. But no, God chooses the messy people of the world to use His plan for his plan of redemption. God uses this incestual, sexual relationship between Judah and Tamar to bring forth the line of the Savior. I'm so glad that God brought it through Judah and not Joseph because it is a reminder to me and a reminder to you that none of us are beyond the grace of God, that none of us are beyond the use of God's grace, that God loves repentant sinners and he loves to use them and to love them and to care for them. And so we see God's grace in this. So we saw Judah's community, which was ungodly, Judah's children, which were ungodly, Judah's character, which was ungodly, Judah's conversion, which was miraculous, and God's grace, which is stupendous. Let me end with this. It's kind of another point. But God's grace is a transforming grace. Some of you may ask, you know, if you are saved by grace, why would you do anything good? Why not just go sin boldly? Maybe you think that in your old heart. You say, I'll just go sin like crazy because I know I'm saved by grace. But if that is your attitude, then it means that you don't understand grace at all. You see, when grace penetrates the depths of our whole heart, it fuels godliness. Let me give you this example. At the Aramingo Diner in Portland, Richmond, in Port Richmond, Pennsylvania, an unknown couple got up to pay their bill. And when they went up to pay their bill, they also decided that they were going to pay for a random stranger in the restaurant. Well, when the stranger went up to pay the bill and they found out that their debt had already been paid, they decided to pay the debt of another stranger, to extend grace to them as well. This went on for two hours one person paying the bill of the next, of a complete stranger. And that person being so motivated by grace and by love and by charity that they decided to do it to another. They, didn't, they weren't obligated to do it, but they did it because they received grace and they wanted to extend that grace to other. If this is how people respond to a free meal, how much more would we respond to the grace of God in which he takes our sin upon the cross, pays our debt in full, that we can live for him? Would this not give us the heart transformation and motivation to be agents of life in this world, to be agents of grace to those around us? God's grace is transformational. As you go on and look at Joseph's story, 
You see Joseph rises to power in Egypt. There's a great famine in the land. His brothers come to get food from him. It's a long story, but, um, but Benjamin, the youngest son, ends up uh, committing a crime against Joseph, kind of tricked into it. And so Joseph says, they don't recognize Joseph at this time. Joseph says, I'm going to take him as my servant. I'm going to enslave him to myself. But the rest of you brothers, you can go home. Take the food and go. And Judah speaks up. And he says to Joseph, take me instead of the boy. Take me instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. This is not the Judah we see in the early parts of Genesis 38. That Judah was selfish, self-centered, and ungodly. But something changed Judah's heart in which he would lay down his own life for his brother. And that thing that changed his heart was grace. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with sin, struggling with greed, struggling with selfishness, it's not that you just need to try harder or work harder. It's that you need to let the grace of God penetrate your soul and change your heart, that it is a delight to live for God and let his grace transform you. Repent once again. Let God's grace penetrate the depth of your being because God delights, delights to show grace to great sinners. Sinners like Judah, sinners like me, and sinners like you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you pour out your grace upon us. We don't deserve it. God, we are like Judah. We are like Tamar. We sin against you so frequently in thought, word, and deed. We may have never committed adultery like they had, but we have sinned in our hearts greatly, Lord. God, pray that we be overwhelmed by your grace, even as we come to your table, reminded of the horror of our sin and the need for Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.